Kara. <laughs> well, hey, Chris. So what are we up to today? Today, we are going to be talking to Jesus Rodriguez, and he is co-author and, and corresponding author. And, and Ana Mateos. So we're going to be talking to both Jesus and Ana, who have a newish paper out in AJHB, which was just given its volume and issue number, called No Sex Differences in the Economy of Load Carriage. And this was one of the articles that editor Bill Leonard wanted us to feature, both through our various social media posts and with the podcast as well. I was thinking because of the, the focus on energy expenditure, this is a paper that's right out of your, your book of, of expertise. Yeah, so I thought it was kind of cool too that, so when you look through stories, and I'm going to call them stories, stories of human evolution and explanations for modern day behavior, it's actually so rare that people talk about kind of the female perspective of things. And it's really interesting to me, and I, I plan on asking, and you know, we get to this into the questions as well, as like why this theory that women are like the main load burden bearers <laughs> and you know hunter-gatherer societies like where did this come from and where did this idea come from that women can somehow handle it better than men or the interesting sexual division of labor of it I thought was fascinating well yeah I mean you make a good point because there's this this sort of running default that oh men are the better hunters so what the hell else are women gonna do they're mm -hmm. gonna they're gonna gather but at reading this paper you know, I'm, I'm thinking of all these images we have in pop culture of women carrying large baskets on their heads and, and things of this nature, which doesn't, so maybe that's what this comes from. I don't know, but this idea that, that women carry more loads and heavier loads because they are biomechanically pre-adapted mm -hmm. or such never ever crossed my mind and but, it's an interesting juxtaposition as well and i was so sad that we were never able to get holly dunsworth on because you had to cancel her visit to your campus to give a talk because this also plays directly into like the obstetric dilemma hypothesis mm -hmm. that states that women are biomechanically disadvantaged supposedly relative to men when it comes to walking so you have like these really interesting lines of inquiry going on that that reaches far beyond just optimal foraging theory well we'll get her back next year let's bring them on hello well welcome to the sausage of science i'm chris and i'm kara <laughs> okay. i am I, I'm <laughs> very nice to meet you thank you for joining us across the atlantic how are things going over there in the pandemic period for you? Well, not bad, but not bad because uh, we are healthy and we are working at home, so fine. Good. And so Spain, Spain was hit pretty hard with the pandemic yeah. as well. And so how have the restrictions been there recently? Uh, well, we, uh, the population is uh, still uh, at home in several uh, provinces, in several areas of the country. But in some areas, they are already opening. The shops are opening in some areas, and, and so, so in an opening phase. Of course, we are the most affected uh, country in Europe, as you know, mm -hmm. apart from, well, UK. not yet, but apart from UK and Russia very soon, because mm -hmm. they are racing very quickly. Mm -hmm. So well, They're winning now. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> very soon. <laughs> but you are winning all of us. <laughs> I we, love the new definition of winning. These well, days. we our, yeah. our our president loves winning, so he's finally winning at yeah. something. Winning, <laughs> so much winning. Right. We have to laugh, otherwise we would just cry all yeah. the time. 
And I want to apologize. I took Spanish since I was eight, but I am terrible at speaking Spanish. So we'll speak English. I hope you don't mind. My Spanish is muy terrible. That's about it. That's what I got. That was pretty rough, too. <laughs> it's been a while. It's been a while for me as well. I took it through high school and most of college, and just vocabulary will pop up now and again. But, but I do want to thank you for joining us across the Atlantic. And where are you in Spain? Uh, at Burgos. It's a small town in the north, about mm. 180,000 people, next to the Basque country. Nice. Oh, okay, yeah. Near Barcelona? Uh, no, it's uh, the Burgos is in the center of the peninsula. Ah, okay. okay. At the same latitude, the longitude of Madrid, but to the north. Okay. I've been to Madrid and I've been to Barcelona, so that's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, usually we start off, we want to know more about you and your pathways to become scientists and researchers, but I'm really fascinated by your center that you're all part of. We have multiple papers in this issue of American Journal of Human Biology, and I'll give the English name, the National Research Center on Human Evolution there in Burgos, Spain. Can you tell us about that institution and the kind of research that you guys have going on? It looks fascinating. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, actually, it's a very young institution because it was created in the 2005. 2005. Uh, so we are, are now about uh, 40, between 40 and 50 people, including technicians and researchers. The number of researchers is about uh, 20, uh, including postdocs and research, senior, research. Yeah. everybody, oh. <laughs> every kind of researcher. Actually, the uh, institution was created because, as you probably know, the Atapuerca sites, which are very important sites for the study of human evolution in, in Europe, especially, but worldwide, of worldwide interest, are located in Burgos. So yeah. this was the reason why a National Center on Human Evolution was created in, in Burgos. Yeah. It is not devoted only to uh, the study of paleoanthropology, but uh, it includes also a strong, very strong area of geology and geochronology in particular, and uh, well, in addition, archaeology, of course, and also paleoecology. But uh, paleoecology, uh, we are actually the only researchers working on, on paleoecology in general. But it's also uh, it is considered uh, in, in Spain in a category yes, that is uh, sorry ICTS. Yeah, ICTS that is uh, translated as unique scientific and technical infrastructures, which are a special. Um, type of uh, a research institution has a, a large budget uh, to especially to buy equipment large equipment and expensive equipment mm. that are not available in many sites in many institutions and in, in our case uh, these equipments are uh, especially dedicated to dating techniques ESR or T thermoluminescence or uranium thorium uh, paleomagnetism, etc. Mm. So there are a lot of people working on that areas in the real briefly for our listeners, because we have you know a wide range of people who are in the field versus people who are not in the field of anthropology. You mentioned the site of Atapuerca. Could you very briefly say where Atapuerca fits in our understanding of human evolution and kind of what was found there? Well, actually, uh, Atapuerca is a keystone for understanding human evolution, at least in Europe. 
and moreover, not all, well, in Europe, and especially during the last million years, uh, the out of Africa evolution, because it covers, well, it includes several sites with uh, human fossils from the oldest, uh, well, they were the oldest uh, fossil, uh, human fossils in Europe, well, actually they were twice or then, because uh, first Homo antecessor uh, fossils were discovered in the TD6 level of Grandolina, which were dated about uh, 800,000 years ago. Uh, and these were the last, the youngest fossil, human fossils in Europe at that moment. Mm. Later, in another site very close to this one, it's his name, Sima del Elefante, mm. more human fossils were found, which were dated to 1.2, 1.4. Uh, well, the date of this, uh, start eight of these uh, fossils is controversial, but in any case, they were the oldest, again, mm. <laughs> the oldest uh, human fossils in, uh, sorry, well, the youngest. There are oldest fossils in, in Europe uh, discovered later in another site in Spain, in southern Spain, in mm-hmm. uh, Leon. Mm. They just genotyped Antecessor. Didn't they just do a genome on Antecessor as well and find that it's yet another thread in the bush of human evolution there in the uh, Upper Paleolithic period or, or older? I guess it would be older than that, but... Uh, I, I, the written paper? Yeah. The Something like that. I remember this. So I just taught my undergraduate intro to bioanthropology and homo antecessor is one that you don't necessarily tell undergrads about right away because there's so many different human fossils and no one knows where they fit. But there was a study that just came out this spring on the genetics uh, of where homo antecessor fits. And I remember getting excited about this for my students. So I'm not a geneticist and I'm not a paleoanthropologist. So this is where I stop. (laughs) I was going to say, let's finally get the, we've gotten the background of the group and I would love to get a little bit of the background of each of you. And maybe we can start with, with, with Anna uh, and hear how you got into biology and, and paleoanthropology. (laughs) Really? I'm an archeology. Archeology. I'm an archaeologist uh, with a specialization in human ecology or human physiology. When I arrived to CENIE in 2005, I had the challenge to create a new domain of research. Kara, uh, you know well the experimental energetics applied to human evolution. And I devoted uh, all my efforts to uh, create the facility at CENIE, the Bioenergetic Lab, a motion analysis lab, and uh, develop several uh, experimental projects. Mm. And now we uh, carry on different tests and experiments with uh, subjects or participants to um, extrapolate our results in modern human to uh, different species uh, of hominins. So that's why this is the reason to create uh, this uh, redesign in my background. But in the frame of Atapuerca project from 10 years ago or 12 years ago, we create a new line of research, human paleoecology, human ecology, 
and I'm uh, in charge of humans, particular humans, the constraint, uh, the internal constraint or physiological constraint of humans, and Jesus is uh, devoted to uh, research or investigate the environmental constraint of mm -hmm. this uh, human population. So <laughs> this is uh, the, the background, the reason. The reason why we are working together. together. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That that's you know, it's a wonderful combination. I guess overlap with our work. And you know, I did some biomechanical work in in grad school, and have much more moved towards energetics. And so, I found this paper in particular that we're we're featuring from AJHB really fascinating because of one the different look at males versus females and so often human evolution is told from the male perspective and so this was an interesting spin on that but also this idea of differential biomechanical efficiencies between men and women that's not just about foraging and, and load bearing but also goes back to the obstetric dilemma so seeing experimental work being done and then extrapolated and applied to the past just it delights me so thank you for that work yeah, thank you for your works. We know well. This is why I said at the beginning we do a little intro. I said this is this is right out of Kara's textbook. So <laughs> yeah, um, I have a textbook. <laughs> you have you have a textbook. It's in my head. There's ask Kara this question. So why don't we just start by well what what you wanted to test, right? So my my read of this is that. There is a notion in the literature that women are pre-adapted for carrying loads. So we see more women, more foraging women were carrying heavier loads than men. And is there any previous research on whether this is true or not? Have other researchers looked at women's load carrying abilities and, before? And kind of just wondering where the origin of this idea comes from, that women carry more than men. Like, where did that start? because this is more related to humans than to environment. <laughs> but, okay. okay, in any case, the fact is that in many societies, in many undergathered uh, uh, groups, uh, women carry larger uh, loads than men, and they do it more frequently. Uh, why? Uh, actually, there are some other work some uh, researchers that proposed that this was uh, due to the biological difference that uh, human uh, human females were better adapted to carry loads well maybe it's uh, for me a biologist on uh, um, evolutionary biologist or paleoecologist is uh, an idea that is not very it seems too naive for me maybe but uh, well uh, it was uh, it has been proposed in the literature so it was uh, necessary to test it because to our knowledge, it had not been tested. Mm. So this was the reason. And moreover, well, why investigating the differences between women and, and, and men? Well, actually, uh, the, of the authors is uh, Olaya Prado, who is one of our students. And uh, her doctoral uh, thesis, she's uh, developing her doctoral thesis, uh, which is about the paleophysiology of uh, women. Uh, mm. uh, female. female, well, maybe uh, Anna may explain you better than me because she's the specialist in the phone. <laughs> <laughs> so Olaya is, uh, Olaya is investigating the female physiology, uh, especially the ecophysiological constraint in, uh, in hunter-gatherer paleolithic population. Well, all the team, especially Olaya, performed the uh, specific experimental test to, to okay. check, to test 
uh, if, uh, whether uh, differences between males and females in several uh, paleolithic activities, for example, locomotion or uh, any other activities, gathering, reenacted gathering activities and so on. So this is research like very important in our team, especially the, uh, devoted to female physiology. So that is the way, the reason for this paper, for these results in these uh, walking unladded and carrying loads uh, activities performed in the lab. Could you tell us a little bit about what was done in the lab, what different activities were tested, and kind of take us through that experiment? Uh, well, <laughs> the experiment was carried on with uh, 48 volunteers and 21 females and 27 males of different ages. And the experiment consisted on working on a treadmill for 10 minutes, for a series of 10 minutes, uh, with uh, four different trials for each uh, participant. Uh, one carry uh, just working on the treadmill and another uh, test of working with five uh, kilograms, with a lot of backpack. five kilograms in a backpack, uh, 10 kilograms and 15 uh, kilograms. So it's a participant uh, carried out, out uh, four different trials. Well, we uh, measured the, or estimated the energy consumed during these uh, trials, during this test, by indirect calorimetry, which is, uh, as you probably know, is a method that uh, estimates the energy uh, spent in, in, a, in an activity uh, on the basis of the oxygen uh, consumed and the CO2 produced by the uh, by the subject. And it's, a rather, it's probably the best uh, method to estimate the energetic cost, non-invasive method, method to uh, estimate the energetic cost of an activity. How did yeah. they hold the, was the backpack on their back? Yeah, yeah, uh, it was, uh, the backpack was in the back and close to, because in this way it was uh, closer to the center of gravity mm -hmm. and this is the the best uh, way to, to carry a lot with the less expensive way to, to <laughs> carry a lot. Yeah. And, uh, but moreover, uh, it is documented that in Hunter Gatherer Society, it's a rather usual way to, to carry lots. I'm curious because when I, I uh, teach human evolution, we, we play with a backpack full of bricks. And mm -hmm. it's an exercise in helping them understand how the weight in the backpack in, uh, changes, the curve of their spine, the, curdo, mm -hmm. the, the uh, kyphosis and lordosis mm -hmm. are enhanced to recenter. And I always, I have them wear it on the front. So it's like a pregnant woman. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've done this as well in class. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I wonder if wearing it on the front because female pelvis is wider would make a difference. But would it represent how loads are actually carried? Which I think this experiment yeah. maybe was more trying to indicate. Yeah, I'm yeah. just curious. <laughs> as, as to, Sorry, I should have let them answer. I'm like, Chris, yeah. this is faulty logic. Well, no, no, this is, this is why we're having a conversation. Yeah. Well, so actually, we can talk over our guests. Actually, we also took uh, measurements, topomedical uh, measurements on the subjects. And we tested whether there was a relationship between the width of the pelvis and the length of the femur with the energetic cost 
but uh, it wasn't. The, the only explaining variable was uh, body weight. Hmm. You just said it there, but say it again. So you found what? Uh, what were the results? Ah, the results, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, the results were that actually the, the only variable that claims differences in the energetic cost of carrying loads between different individuals was body weight. Because mm. uh, larger individuals are able to carry more efficiently heavier uh, loads, but of course they are energetic cost is also larger. Yep. Larger individuals expend more energy transporting the, the load, but uh, without differences between males and females mm -hmm. of the same body weight. Of course, females in general are uh, lighter than, than males, and this makes a difference because if you look at the, if you compare the mean energetic cost of females with the mean energetic cost of males, there is a difference because males are larger. Mm -hmm. But for a general male and a general female of the same body weight, the cost is the same. That tracks with a lot of, a lot of really interesting exercise physiology data, as well as, you know, within living population data that so much just comes down to body size and then differences that people assume are due to innate differences between men and women just all disappear once you actually take into account just body mass and body mass alone. Yeah, no, I was going to say I, I appreciate the point that Jesus made earlier when he said, based on some of the suppositions, the beliefs that writers have had about there being differences, it seemed naive to me, right, that there would be a difference. He said, as a biologist, it seemed naive that people would think this, but we may as well test it. There is no mm -hmm. data, because once something gets in the literature mm -hmm. as though it's true, People think, well, someone out there must have tested this. So we're just going to cite this person, right? So, so one, I love that you've taken a study, taken an opportunity to test something that you assumed was naive. And it, it's a relatively simple experimental approach. And then as you explained it, I got sucked into, well, wait a minute. Pelvises are different. Well, wait a minute. And I could easily switch over to thinking the other way that there mm. there must be some fundamental difference because of pregnancy or something that's special for women like that so this is really interesting it's amazing how the history of our field has shaped the way we start interpreting things and not necessarily in the most objective ways so i yeah i get that's a great great comment and a question i had so Having done similar kind of work with indirect calorimetry and testing people on treadmills and things like that, there's always the problem that I struggle with and that on a treadmill, people have to go the speed you tell them to go, <laughs> which yeah. of course doesn't actually represent what they might be doing outside yeah. of the laboratory. And so I'm wondering your thoughts on how preferred speed might be different in a natural setting and not in a laboratory setting to know if perhaps the you know larger individuals who are carrying the larger loads might be taking a longer time because they're walking slower. And so just kind of thoughts about that, how things might still be happening going on between men and women that might not be a physiological or biomechanical difference, but say preferred speed might be adjusting costs over time. That's right. It's an interesting point. It's, it will be interesting to, to test the effect of different velocities. To mm -hmm. Maybe 
may, for the future, we may repeat the, the experiments uh, varying the velocity or trying to find first the optimal velocity for each mm. individual mm -hmm. and issuing the cost at that velocity. It would be it's an interesting idea for the future. No, it's great. But I mean, you guys had to start in the right place, which is, you know, set the baseline with the laboratory study. And I, I think that's really, really where things need to begin. So in your paper, you put the findings in the context of life history theory and optimal foraging theory. And I found it fascinating, but not all of our listeners are familiar with the theory. So I wonder if you could tell us why this is important in a way that that anyone listening could understand. Right, so optimal foraging theory just uh, assumes, well, it's a, a theory that uh, is not only applicable to humans, but to any organism, uh, particularly animals, that tries to explain the foraging behavior of any species, assuming that uh, foragers, animals, try to obtain the maximum uh, energy, the maximum benefit, with the uh, minimum cost. It's a very intuitive idea, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, concerning the life history theory, it's something similar but not the same because life history theory assumes that each individual, each animal has a limited amount of energy at uh, its disposal. And this energy must be located, allocated to do different things, uh, to, to keep alive in the first time mm -hmm. and uh, to reproduce. Uh, so uh, there must be trade-offs between one activity and the other. The energy to expand in uh, looking for uh, food, for example, may not be directly invested in reproduction, which is ultimately the measure of, of fitness. The, to determine the fitness is the uh, reproductive success. So, well, in the context of foraging ecology, the differences among the different behavior of women and men in uh, this, these societies, in this counter societies, might be explained because it might be explained if there were differences in the economy of mm. the activity, it might be explained because women would be doing what is most uh, inexpensive or uh, less expensive for them. But we saw that this is not the case, so um, that would be another reason. In the context of the life history theory, something uh, similar, it might be argued that uh, women uh, spend less energy in this activity, so this was less expensive for them, and so they carried on this activity because of uh, the reason. Actually, neither of the two explanations fits with the results, because our results is that the, physiologically there are not differences, so uh, the reason of this behavior is not that women spend less energy in, in, in this activity, in transport activities. So there must be another explanation. And this uh, may also be understood in the context of like uh, history theory and also related to the fact that, uh, well, the investment of uh, women and men in the uh, in reproduction is different, it's not symmetrical. And uh, moreover, the, the role played in most uh, of these societies, or all of them, by women taking care of the offspring is, is very high. So women dedicate more of most time to take care of children and children are usually very close to their mothers for long time periods, well, for many years mm -hmm. uh, of okay. age. So women cannot carry risky tasks. Mm -hmm. 
transporting load is energetically expensive, but it is of low risk uh, compared with other activities uh, that may uh, are usually carried on by uh, males in these uh, societies, like hunting or uh, even gathering at long, long distances, uh, etc. Uh, women usually dedicate their time to take care of the offspring, to gather, and when the entire group moves or they carry the load, and women and men perform other activities because they are not tied to the offspring, for mm. to say to speak. So I find this interesting, and sadly, what I'm about to say is all anecdotal because no one has studied it just yet. Women are starting to outperform men in ultra endurance events. So 100, 200 mile marathons, women are starting to beat men regularly. And there's this debate of whether it's something physiological or biomechanical or something behavioral that women are able to pace themselves better than say men are. And I think that could have some really important implications, like you've said before, of extrapolating to our ancestors of how there is this really interesting interplay between behavior as well as physiology and, and biomechanics uh, and the way we see that play out right now in modern sports, which is kind of cool. But I could talk about that for much too long. So given what you, you all just published in AJHB with a couple of different projects, what's next for you? Uh, what are you working on now? If anything, if you're allowed to at the moment, <laughs> I know I'm not. So. Well, we are involved in, in a number of concerning the experimental bioenergetics. We have several, uh, several lines of, of work. We have some uh, experimental projects in course. So we have just uh, finished some manuscript on these results. We have with this experimental on working and load and carry and uh, working with carrying notes. We have uh, another manuscript on foraging ecology in several different species of hominids. So uh, in the and different uh, homo and any other, uh, any other manuscript, any other paper with the energetic causes of walking in uh, hominids. Yes. It, it is a paper is published in American Journal of Physical Anthropology and anthropology uh, in 2000 but the the new papers or the new manuscript we are working on and we are submitted now is uh, about the gathering activities or inactive gathering activities in uh, and locomotion in children and adolescents it's a very important uh, topic we have, don't forget the, the role of uh, children and adolescents in the subsistence of the human groups, from the gathering groups, and any other paper or manuscript in uh, concerning the energetic locomotion in pregnant female, the difference is between pregnant and non-pregnant females in, uh, in an experimental test on locomotion, especially oh, females in a third trimester of gestation. It is a very important topic concerning the biomechanical, yeah. <laughs> biomechanical I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's playing off Carol Wall Scheffler's work and Doidal Numbers and Tilkin's work. So yeah, no, that's great to hear that's being more deeply explored. That makes me really happy. <laughs> so the, concerning this line, it, this is the new uh, works uh, we carry on 
on females, on children and adolescents, and other adults, males and females. So at least three uh, manuscripts uh, on course. Yeah. Any other works on human paleoecology? Briefly explain the or the manuscript we are working now. This is not of uh, about bioenergetics. It doesn't include experiments with, with subjects. We focus on the environmental constraints for Middle Pleistocene hominins in Europe. The environmental constraints understood as the climate, the effect of the climate and thermoregulation on the distribution of humans in, in Pleistocene Europe, and also the influence of the availability of foraging resources. So this is a different uh, line of research, but it is all also in the same frame of uh, human ecology or human paraecology. I would love to see you two and, and members of the center come over and join us for one of our conferences at some mm. point. But I think I would rather go there because you have, <laughs> with Atapuerca and the resources yeah. that you have there, it sounds like you have a real hub for the study mm -hmm. of human evolution. You're sitting in the middle of all of that prehistory, so. With an awesome um, bioenergetics lab going on too, which you know I geek out about. So when are you guys hosting a conference that we can all go to? We will be very happy to participate in one of your conferences, of course. You got, do you guys do conferences there? Yes, sometimes. Well, we organize, but uh, usually we have organized in the fall of human paraecology or human ecology, we have organized conferences at European level. Of course, there are conferences on other topics about yeah. geochronology and so on. It sounds wonderful, and I hope to learn more about your research in the future. This has been wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. And how can people either get in touch with you or learn more about the center? Ah, yeah, see, of, uh, of course. People make a know about the center with the in the web page in www.cenie.es and uh, also the, the official twitter of cenie which is mm -hmm. at cenie and also uh, about the work in the in the labs at cenie uh, labs uh, hashtag cts news wonderful is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience before we go today no, just that it was a pleasure for us to go with you. Thank you, Anna. For sure, you know how much this kind of stuff aligns with what I do. So it was an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you both so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, the pleasure was ours. Thank you for Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. I am one of the associate producers, Teresa Gilner. This show would not be possible without the support of the American Journal of Human Biology and the Human Biology Association. Be sure to check out the most recent issue of the American Journal of Human Biology and stay posted for our weekly podcast episodes. Please like us, rate us, share us, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.